This is an RNZ podcast. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. <laughs> Okay. Uh, oh. Bang. bang. What? Bang. <laughs> it's called bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> Kia ora, hello, I'm Melody Thomas, and this is Bang podcast exploring sex, sexuality, relationships, gender and all that good stuff through real stories. It's nearly time to wrap this season of Bang. After this episode we've got the live show in Auckland which is all sold out and then we're going to take a break to collect some stories and think up some themes for season three. Now because sex is such a huge subject, there's still a lot that I'm planning to get to that I haven't managed to yet. I have a huge list, and if there's anything that you think should be on that list, get in touch, especially if you have a story of your own to share. You can email bang at radionz.co.nz or hunt me down on Twitter, send me a message, and even if you think there's something that might be a story but you're not 100% sure, let's just have a chat and see. In this episode, we're going to hear from people who carry a story that guilt or shame or embarrassment has made hard to share. A childhood trauma that one woman had to survive and flourish in spite of. An embarrassing early sexual experience that one man struggled with for years before reaching acceptance. And a woman who left an old life behind only to find herself stuck in a kind of in-between limbo state. As always, we're going to be talking about sensitive topics, so take care when you listen and who you listen with, but also this episode comes with a content warning. We will be dealing with childhood abuse. Each of the names in today's episode have also been changed, but as always, their stories are real. The first person we're going to meet is Shelley. Shelley got in touch with me, I'm pretty sure, on social media, and I knew right away that I had to get her into the studio to chat. Yeah, I am uh, 29, I'll be 30 this year, and I'm an Aucklander born and bred. I grew up in a Christian family, and so faith and church life was a big part of our family culture. You know, we weren't just kind of the the once-a-year churchgoers, we were regular and involved. Yeah, that sort of shaped my own identity and I chose that for myself when I was quite young and then continued kind of choosing that through my teenage years. And do you continue to choose that to to this day? I'm not sure. (laughs) That has been in the last few years something that I've been uh, trying to figure out and decide whether that's something that I still want or whether it was something that was for a season in my life. I have a feeling that the thing that has brought you here is tied in with that background, mm-hmm. possibly to some degree. So Good do you, Do you want to tell people why it is that you're here? Yeah, so I am a 29, nearly 30-year-old virgin, and for a long time that was uh, faith-based. We were encouraged to remain virgins until we were married and only um, commit to having sex with that person for the rest of our lives. So for a long time that was what I was taught and believed for myself and it's only been in the last maybe five to eight years that I've sort of unpacked that and wanted to think about whether that's something I want to continue holding as important and I I think it's not anymore 
I think there was a lot of fear around it from the church towards young people, and so that was the reason why it was encouraged. And I don't necessarily want to have something in my life that's kind of fear-based or coming from a negative. I know one of the other things, you know, as well as the fear, or maybe it's tied in with the fear, there's, you know, this idea that of purity tied with virginity. Is mm. that something that you at, at one time believed in, and how do you feel about that idea now? Yeah, I actually, when I was younger, took part in an essay competition where I wrote about um, the idea of waiting to have sex until I was married. And this was at an age like very early teens. But just to already have kind of hypothetically nailed my colours to the mast um, about something that I really had no concept of. And a lot of that was around the purity, the kind of keeping yourself quote-unquote whole and, you know, untouched and those kinds of things was definitely all kind of language that I grew up with. And at what point did you start to think that they didn't fit you perhaps so much or that you weren't as you know keen to hold on to them? I think probably when I was in my mid-twenties, you know, when you're younger and you're in church, you're often sort of thinking ahead to a certain age where you're going to be married or you might be starting to have children or whatever. And then when that doesn't happen at that time frame, I was sort of starting to consider, you know, maybe I wouldn't be married or maybe I wouldn't have a relationship as young as some of my friends. Now that I was out of the kind of teenage years, I was feeling like I knew myself a bit more and knew what I wanted and what was important to me, that the idea of having a relationship where things progressed at a pace that felt natural and normal and that there was, you know, open communication from both sides, you know, that felt a lot more real and genuine than a relationship where there's certain rules that almost someone else has put on you. I think as you get older, you can figure that sort of stuff out for yourself. So Shelley found herself at a crossroads. Behind her was the familiar road of purity and abstinence, and ahead was who knows. And if you haven't been there, it's hard to know what you would do in this situation. But Shelley looked around for a map. OK, I'll put the road metaphor aside just for a second, but I'm going to come back to it because I'm quite fond of it. But what I mean by that is that she started to research she read articles, she listened to podcasts, including one very informative, much-loved, award-winning New Zealand podcast that I won't name here, and she talked to friends. And Shelley's friends, if you're listening, you did good. One of them actually asked if I had, if I'd ever masturbated, and I was like, oh, no, no, haven't, haven't done that, and wouldn't even know how to, or wouldn't even know what you... I meant to do, and I think she encouraged that it could be something I could think about or, or you know, and I can remember actually sort of experimenting, I guess, and it didn't really <laughs> seem to go anywhere, and then I remember talking to her about it again, and I was like, I don't know if I'm doing it right, like, I don't know what <laughs> I'm doing, and she was like, you, when you, well, you will know when you, like, just trust me, you'll know when you get there, like, you figured it out, you figured it out, you'll know, and so then I can still remember this is... <laughs> This is a lot. Um, I can still remember the first time because, and I was just, and once it had happened, I was just like, oh yeah, you definitely know when you. you that's definitely a defining okay, that was, thing. That's a that thing. Was something. That was something. That wasn't like, was I doing it right or wrong? Yeah. Um, You're lucky to have had a friend like that that you can speak so openly with. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I am. Yep. And I can remember telling her about it afterwards as well, and she was thrilled. She was over. She was over the moon. Um, that. Yeah. She was very happy for me. <laughs> so. I think we all are. Now, in a minute, we're going to hear more about Shelley's itty-bitty baby steps on the road to sex and relationships. But first, there's this other thing that I think you should know about her. 
Now imagine you're going through something like this. You're just starting to get in touch with your own sexuality on your own terms, wondering if you're going to find another person to explore with, and at an age where it probably feels like everyone else is miles ahead of you. Now, imagine that on top of that, you work as a marriage celebrant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's something we, I talk about with my therapist a lot because... <laughs> I'm up close there with, you know, with people on a very significant day in their life. And I remember in the first couple of years, I had a couple that, not often, but every now and then, you know, people will meet with a few other celebrants and they'll choose someone who they feel more connected to, and that's totally fine. But people feel like they have to give you a reason. And actually, they can just say, like, thank you for your time. I've booked someone else. That's actually fine. But this couple decided to, to say that they thought I was very nice, but that they thought with a bit more life and love experience, I could be a very good celebrant. (laughs) And I hadn't talked to them about my love life because it's not something I bring up with clients often. Uh, So I don't know where that came from and I don't know what vibe I was giving (laughs) over. Um, I laughed and then I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. And then I laughed again. So it's good for people to know that you don't, you can just send an email and say, no, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, you don't don't need, no, no. you don't need to give a, don't feel like you need to give a reason. When you're marrying people, is that, um, can that ever be tough, you know, or is it, or is it therapeutic? I don't, I mean, I don't know Um, how that would play out. Yeah, it can be either. There's always a bit of a come down, you know, you've had this very emotional experience and Mm. then they're all off celebrating and you've kind of slipped away and sometimes you've said goodbye to them very quickly because they're doing photos or people are hugging them, they're doing a million things, you know. So there's already a bit of an emotional you know, drop that happens anyway. But if I've particularly connected with the couple or I've... You know, if I've I've felt emotional in the ceremony for them or when I've heard their vows, if there's been something that I really resonate with, then, yeah, then that has been hard at times to go home then by myself. I don't live with other people. I house sit, and so I'm always generally going home to an empty house, hopefully with a pet, and they they make me feel good. So fast forward to now. Here's Shelley having done an admirable amount of research to prepare herself for her new sex-positive life. Now it's time to start doing some of the things that she's read and heard so much about, like dating. I was on a date with somebody and this boy asked if he could kiss me and I hadn't kissed anybody before that. And I was like, ah, and I had... uh, (laughs) Just say yes! I know, and, (laughs) and... I mean, I did end up kissing him, but not that night because I had already talked to him about (laughs) the not having sex thing, the not kissing thing, and I had really felt like I'd been very vulnerable and I just didn't know if I could cope with with more. But you did did, eventually. But I did eventually, and I I remember thinking after that I should have just said yes the first, like I shouldn't have had a couple of extra days that I didn't need, you know, I'd had 28 and a half years, you know. Uh, And um, how was the kiss? Um, Awkward like every first kiss? Yeah, probably. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Okay, so it turns out it's not so simple as taking a few steps down a new road and then you're on your way. Even with a really good map, there's things that can happen on any road trip that you didn't anticipate. So Shelley's a little stuck. Maybe the older I've gotten and the lack of relationships that there have been in my life it's led me to wonder more and more if this is ever going to change. And I suppose to protect myself, I've thought I have to be okay if it doesn't. I don't want to be one of those people who's kind of waiting for their life to begin. And so 
if this is how it is, I want to be content and happy with, with that. And there are a lot of people who go through their lives perfectly happily without being in a relationship. But I get the feeling that a relationship is something you want for yourself. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I've gotten used to the idea of being single, but it's not necessarily what I would want if I could kind of dream up um, mm. the future for myself. But I also can't make that happen. You, you can decide if you want to change careers or, you know, you can kind of make things happen for yourself, but it's like a, a relationship is the only thing that will happen or not happen outside of your control almost. But I also know, you know, I've come out of a few sort of first dates or first and second dates where I've been like, oh, yeah, you know, nice enough person, you know, on paper, has all the, has all the right things or whatever. But if there's not anything more than that there, I also know that I can be OK by myself and that it's not mm. enough just to have someone who's a kind of a filler. Like, I remember somebody saying to me years ago that it's better to be lonely in a bed by yourself than lonely in a bed with someone else. Everybody wants, you know, some form of connection and as much as you can be independent and content and, you know, have everything you want for your own life, you still want to go home and have someone to rent to or to, you know, laugh with or to, um, yeah, just have someone who's always on your team. Thank you so much, Shelley. Now it's time to check in with today's expert. Uh, my name is Edith Horvat. I'm a sex therapist and relationship therapist, and I work in private practice in Auckland. Edith hasn't met Shelley. She's heard as much of our conversation as you have, but she does have a bit of experience helping clients with some of the things that Shelley brought up. I asked for her first reaction to Shelley's story. My first reaction was that I actually work with a number of couples where they were virgins when they got married and then they just could not work out what to do and how to do it. Mm. Or they really feel the pressure of now we have to be masters of this and for all these years we were not allowed even talking about it or thinking about it, especially not doing it. So they all talked about this magic line of now suddenly we have to produce the goods because in most of these traditional religious circles, that's sort of the next step that, that you have to get married and, and then they don't normally talk about sex, but okay, where are the children, you know, counting the months and where are they? Yeah. So the pressure of that from the family and community is so huge and that psychological pressure can totally shut down individuals. This is such a complex issue because we live in an over-sexualized world in the Western world and the individuals who grow up highly affected by these religious teachings are between two really different worlds and negotiating that gap must be enormously difficult. So this is actually something that Shelley brought up. She talked to me about how some of her friends had struggled to negotiate that exact gap. And I've heard from a lot of friends that were in the church world who 
never masturbated, have never looked at porn, have never really known their own bodies and what they like and what they don't like because that was always sort of shunned. And then even now, as people that are married and having sex with their husband or wife, there's still guilt around you're being told not to have this thing for so long and now all of a sudden you're allowed to like switch it on, like it's a tap and you can just change, you know, years of conditioning. And there's guilt around a whole lot of other things that they don't know if they're allowed to kind of experiment with and, you know, they don't really know what they enjoy and that's just heartbreaking for me. Yeah, yeah. Back to Edith Horvath. I mean, I hear a lot of my clients talking about going to boarding school and having their hands beaten because they were under the cover so they have to sleep with their hands sort of on the top of the blankets because otherwise they might be pleasuring themselves. And it's not just Christianity because I mean I I, I have uh, clients from other backgrounds as well mm. where this very harsh and hard-lined ideal of being a virgin, not being touched by, by anybody, not touching yourselves, and anything, everything which the body might feel pleasurable is not allowed. There's still this one thing that Shelley isn't sure about. It's her version of a question that we've heard a lot in this series, posed in a bunch of different ways. Things like, when do I tell a potential partner about my sexuality, my disability, my ex? And all of these questions come back to disclosure. I still am confused and conflicted about how early this sort of conversation would need to happen with someone because I'm aware that it's a part of my history, but it also is not something I'm holding on to as strongly anymore. And I wouldn't want them to think, oh, well, if we have sex, then it has to be serious and amazing or it has to, you know, then we have to get married. and, And that's not what it has to be anymore. And then I also don't want it to be like a fetish for someone else. It is really tricky and I and I go back and forth in my mind about whether it's something I would want to tell people, tell them at all until it's happened. Okay, I definitely don't have an answer to this one. What does Edith think? There will be at the beginning times to, to talk about that, you know, my faith is important for me or I, I grew up in this church and it was very important for my family to go to church. And then there is a time when we start talking about more in-depth experiences of our lives, but more of, you know, uh, somebody hurt me when I was in school and I'm still sort of working through that. Of course, I can't say, you know, after so many dates or after so many weeks or months, but there's a time when you know that you could trust that person, where you could trust yourself with your most important decision Do you think if you're in a relationship and it's heading to that place where that type of sex is likely to happen, that it needs to be disclosed before that does? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be um, really protecting both parties to talk about that this is an important step for me. And because it's important for me, it should be important for you as well. Because, I mean, for a lot of people, their first time kiss, their first time sexual experience can be not the most successful. But at a certain age, you know, people in their 20s or 30s, when it's their first time, they could create a space which is private, which is not rushed, you know, you're not drunk. So you know that it is something what you treasure and that will be something what the couple will will treasure for the future because it is very, very important for them. Thank you, Edith. We're going to come back to you again soon. Now it's time to introduce you to my friend, Henry. 
Kia ora, Melody. I am 34 years old. I've been sexually active since I was 17 and have had a range of experiences in that time. I've always been quite an open person, and, and so when you uh, said that you think that today's topic might be of interest to your listeners, I thought, why not? So what is today's topic? Yeah, I think I think um, you want to talk about that thing that really isn't a big deal, but also kind of is, which is uh, the topic most commonly known as premature ejaculation. First, some quick statistics. 2-5% of men report experiencing premature ejaculation. Though there's a problem in those numbers because premature ejaculation isn't that well defined. Generally, we're looking at what's called an intervaginal ejaculatory latency time, so that's the period from penetration to ejaculation, that lasts less than two minutes. But it's also really subjective. Some men who ejaculate really quickly don't see it as an issue. Some men who take a bit longer still think it happens too fast. In one Australian survey, nearly a quarter of the men surveyed said they believe they came to orgasm too quickly. Also, this is the kind of thing that can be present throughout someone's life or come and go. And as well as cis men, some non-binary and trans people also experience it. Okay, back to Henry. I started by asking him about the first time he remembers this happening. When I was probably 18 or 19, I had a relationship with this woman who was um, maybe six years older than me, who I was completely infatuated with. And, um, and I was astounded that she was interested in me, but she clearly was. We ended up having, I guess, a, a bit of flirting and a relationship kind of built. And then one day after a big walk, she came back to my house and we proceeded to make out. Um, and then we, um, you know, we decided that we were going to have sex and put the condom on and she climbed on top of me. And I think I pretty much came the moment she lowered herself onto me. And um, I'll tell you, it was, the, the feeling that I felt was, I know, it's like a holding a sort of balloon and a water balloon in my hands and um, really wanted to have fun with it. And then it just slipped down my fingers and smashed all over and some of it got on my pants. And she was amazing about it. And something that I, you know, later learned is that women, if they've had a number of partners, will have experienced that. So her reaction wasn't really a problem, but... I just felt so terrible because I felt like I'd mucked up my big chance and I was trying to impress her and I think, you know, she liked me because I was kind of confident and she and I had this idea that, she, that I was supposed to be some sort of Don Juan or whatever and it really didn't play out that way. And I recall agonising over it for a really long time and it actually getting in the way of us being able to properly explore the sexuality that we did have with each other. Do you remember being embarrassed? Yeah, yeah, and it's, Embarrassment, but it's almost it's embarrassment plus a eh? because it's um, it's not just oh my voice cracked when I, or I accidentally called the teacher by my mum's name or you know <laughs> one of those other kinds of embarrassment that you have in your sort of formative years. So embarrassment's probably almost not the right word for mm. it. It's more like a like a sort of a, um, a crushing kind of oh I'm a terrible person and, and why would anyone anyone want to be with me kind of mm. kind of feeling. And so that got in the way a little bit of further interactions with that woman. Did it continue to kind of come up throughout your life a bit from there on? That sort of scenario of like judging myself sexually, feeling like I was supposed to have a certain kind of performance and then feeling that sort of um, disappointment or or self-deprecation when my own 
performance didn't stack up to what I thought I was supposed to be is definitely something that I've encountered a lot over my life. And, and it, to be honest, like it's probably something that I've only really got my head around in more recent years, actually. When you grew up, the landscape was quite different in terms of the kinds of pornography you would have been exposed to as well. And I'm just imagining young men dealing with this now when the pornography oh, yeah. they see, if it is standing in for their sexuality education, you'd never see this. Totally, because you know, I, th- I think there's that element to it that you know, you're know you judging yourself against these guys that have subway-length schlongs and seem to be able to just decide every time the moment that they want to come or have to make a real effort to come or whatever. But then also I think something else that it took me a while to get my head around was also female sexuality and about how you know it's really diverse too. And while there's definitely things that men and women absolutely need to learn and, and, to, and to have good sex with each other and communicate well with each other. It's not a one-size-fits-all model for women either. And so to go into a sexual experience kind of visualising some epic porn scene and then, and then measuring your performance against that, I think it, it puts yourself down, but it also potentially blocks out your sensitivity to what your partner might actually enjoy as well. I guess there's kind of a couple of ways to look at this thing, and, and one of them is that and I guess that's the way that a lot of people would look at it is, oh, here's this thing that happens with you. Let's figure out a way to fix it. The other is, here's this thing that happens, potentially this idea that we have of sex as this thing where, at least within straight relationships, a man and a woman get together, have sex for a certain amount of time. One or both of them has an orgasm and it's over. It needs reassessment. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest gifts that I've learned in my own sexuality and I actually borrowed this line from uh, sexologist Connor Habib. He's got this saying, and people, when you first hear this, it's a bit jarring, but this idea of sex isn't supposed to feel good. And when he unpacks that, what he means is not that sex is supposed to not feel good, <laughs> but more that it's not supposed to be anything. It's actually this way for two humans, or more humans, or one human, <laughs> whatever, to interact and communicate and have an experience together. Now, sometimes that's going to be a cosmic, mystical experience. Sometimes it's going to be a slightly weird experience that you're like, oh, how do I feel about that? Sometimes it's going to be a beautiful, tender experience and sometimes it's going to be a passionate and furious and raw kind of experience. If you just have this, oh, you know, we kiss and then we have foreplay and then I try and make her come first because I know I might come and then I come and then it's over. That's pretty boring. I've had experiences where, yeah, I came really quick, but because I was really into somebody, we maintain that intimacy and care and closeness and sensuality and then things happen again and then it's often different the second time. And I kind of come to the conclusion that it was usually me making a big deal out of it rather than my partner. Oh, my God. I wish I had clients like him. <laughs> well, you wouldn't have clients. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> this is it again. Is premature ejaculation and things around that, are they things that you encounter fairly often in your um, private practice? A number of men do come to me to talk about premature ejaculation or erectile issues. In the past, I had quite a number of older men or men with uh, prostate issues, especially after uh, operations. But nowadays, I I see quite a number of quite young, you know, in in their 20s, 30s uh, guys who 
feel that they have these issues. So we have to sort of talk a lot around their physical health, their psychological health, and some of the potential issues in their past. And this idea that sex is a penis and a vagina, and that's that, I'm, I'm using most of my time to dispel that and talk about varied sexual techniques and, and behaviours and how foreplay should not be sort of two minutes of, of, of fondling, but foreplay is life. Oh my goodness, I'm just seeing all the merchandise, the hats and T-shirts and pins I could make with foreplay as life. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> We're going to take that and run with it. That is glorious. <laughs> I asked RNZ and I'm not allowed to make that merch, but if you want to make that merch and then send me it, I'll do photo ops head to toe in that. Now, as you can imagine, premature ejaculation and related stuff like impotence comes up with Edith's clients a lot. And there's a few different things that she explores when it does. I believe that first and foremost, individuals need to look at any biological issues, whether they have blood pressure issues, you know, anything which physically can cause either the uh, premature ejaculation or the erectile uh, dysfunction. After that, look into why is it happening and, and, and what's their perception around that. It's a perception of time and, and what, is, what is long enough before ejaculating or not. And whether it is only with one partner, uh, whether it happens without a partner, is it happening watching, for example, porn? So work out the, the potential environmental or relational issues around that. The third one, there are a number of exercises people could do, and I teach my clients around this, which are practicing certain ways on their own and then um, with partner to extend the, the time before they ejaculate. I was going to do the thing that I usually do where I ask our expert for advice for people who are struggling with a thing before we move on. But actually, I asked Henry for advice, and it was so good that I want to finish with him. Well, firstly, I'd say maybe try and think of yourself as more of a whole being. If a woman wants to be with you or you're being close with a woman, it's likely to be about the way you hold yourself and the way you communicate with them and your body language. And, you know, and so if we can kind of try and take that sort of way of thinking about ourselves into our sex lives. And if you do come early, or what you think is early, accept that, like, don't, don't kill your own orgasm. Like, if you, <laughs> if you feel it slipping out of the gate, go for it, you know? Like, enjoy it. Have an orgasm and celebrate the fact that you're so attracted to your partner that you have an orgasm, but then stay close. Don't just roll over and start beating yourself up. Keep close and keep intimate with your partner and then either you'll have an opportunity to try again <laughs> or B, even if that experience wasn't quite what it was, you haven't kind of created a wall between yourself and your partner that then you have to let sit there for the rest of the night or the rest of the day. or Because in a way, you know, if you've lasted for 30 seconds or 10 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour, if when you come, you just end it and then cold shoulder your partner, that's pretty shit anyway. Whereas to spend a night with someone being really intimate and having a range of different sexual experiences. Watching the pleasure rise and fall is, I think, how you um, end up really bonding with somebody. And then that sort of space, you may find that challenges just start to dissipate on their own anyway.
we've got time for one more story. I just want to provide a content warning again. This is where we're going to talk about childhood sexual abuse. But we're not going to wade into horrifying details. This is one woman's story of surviving and making her way to the other side of something huge, but that she didn't choose. This woman happens to be my workmate, and we're pretty close, but there were a couple of years where I didn't know this thing about her. One day, I began to notice that she was struggling. I didn't know what with, but I just got the feeling that there was stuff going on in her life that was affecting her work. And eventually, she opened up about what was going on. I had just gone to the police to lay a complaint about a historic sexual abuse. And, (laughs) oh God, that's really hilarious. I just thought I'd do it on my lunch break. You know, just casually go down to the police station like like I was just going to deal with my parking ticket. <laughs> totally wasn't like that. I think the time that you cottoned on to something was probably when I was in the depths of doing my evidential interview and having to go through the steps of a court process. And what, why I went to the police uh, was because a whole bunch of other fellow survivors had finally got their case heard and he had been found guilty. Basically, it was it was mostly done, so it was easy for me to come and slide in and, and add my five cents worth. So she says it was easy because of the work done by the survivors who came before her. But even from the outside, I could see it wasn't easy. She was having physiological reactions to the stress, like this relentless cold that seemed to last about three months and this itchy, eczema-like rash that broke out on one hand. I know I talk about this in a very offhand, off-the-cuff way, and I know that people all deal with trauma differently, and mine is definitely to play things down because it has been way too big a shadow in my life before, but also it's formative. So I've lived with it since I was six years old. You know, for anyone to say that I'm flippant, yes, I am being flippant, but it's also been something that I'm used to living with. We're not going to get into the exact details of what happened to my friend. This is about as much as you need to know. Basically, um, I just had a very dodgy primary school teacher at my school. And this was something that she had talked about with a few people over her life, but a lot of people didn't know. I remember one time I was at university and I just thought, I just want to tell everyone. I want to tell everyone like it was as though I broke my leg when I was six years old. That's how I'd like to refer it to as. You know, if, if someone had climbed a tree when they were six years old and broke their arm, if someone said, oh, what's that scar on your arm? You could just be like, oh, there's this time I fell out of a tree. I couldn't do that about this. And that made me really angry because it wasn't my fault. And I remember this one time I was talking to a friend and I just said, I just wish we could talk about it as though it was just a physical injury that you could just get ACC for. You know, why can't it be like that? It's it's not an accident or an event that I was at all responsible for. Like no child is responsible for, for anything like that happening. And so why is it that it is still attached with shame? This is This is some adults seriously letting down the next generation. I don't know how much isn't you Isn't that wanna... weird that we just already talk? Like, isn't, is, how often do workmates talk about sex? Let alone this. <laughs> Let alone. Oh, workmates who have gone through filing a case against historic sexual abuse. Well, but, but, like, as you say, why shouldn't we be talking about that? 
It's not my fault it happened. It's not your fault it happened. We all have workmates that are carrying trauma or dealing with insane situations. You know, workmates, people we sit on the bus next to, other parents or friends or friends of friends, like everyone all around us is carrying and walking with something. And I couldn't help but feel the weight of that when I was going through this. Like when I was just about to lose my nut, you know, walking to work, just in my own head of all the stuff I was dealing with, I just thought, how many people around me in a five-meter radius are carrying whatever it is they're having to deal with silently? So here she was, trying to keep herself together at work, while also preparing a victim impact statement. What that means is she is about to go into a courtroom, she's going to be face-to-face with the person who did this to her all those years ago, and she is to read a statement about how their actions have affected her life. And I was there in that courtroom with a bunch of her friends and some workmates and her parents, other family, her husband, and it was amazing. It was really intense, but she was amazing. And afterwards, she says that things felt different. I just felt this lightness, just a lightness that I had never experienced before. Yeah, there was always a knot in my stomach and a tightening in my body when I thought about it or talked about it. And after that sentencing trial, that feeling's not there at all. There is nothing that gives me that punch in the gut or that twist in my kind of intestine. And I know that what I'm going to say is going to be really difficult for some people to stomach, but the way I thought about it was there are so many people and so many children who have survived sexual abuse. There are so many people who have survived sexual assault. We can't pretend like it's a thing that doesn't happen. It's a thing that's part of the spectrum of human interaction. It's not a nice one, but we have to accept it's a thing that happens. You know, we're still funny about death. We're still funny about people having terminal illnesses. Well, guess what? There are actually things that people do that aren't very nice, and this is one of them. And let's be honest, the business we work in loves that stuff, about murders, about car crashes, about people doing crazy things to each other. So if we can talk about it in that, why can't it be for me and those girls to talk about when it's actually our experience I just want to come here and say that sucky things really happen, but you can still make an okay life. You know, of course, everyone else's results may vary. I'm going through a court process and I don't have to worry about putting food on my table, heating my house, that I have a job, that I can take time off. I have a a great partner. I have supportive friends and make no mistake, the fact that I'm a university educated person and I work in broadcasting means I can get up and say exactly what I mean to that person's face. So, you know, I come with all these skills in life to be able to get a good outcome from it. And that's not lost on me. It's one thing to survive the events that happened. It's a total other mind scramble to wade through a justice process. Mm. And so that's maybe why, that is why I never went to the police before. 
because I just didn't think I had the emotional strength to go through that. It's like I'd rather get on with my life and make it work than have to forensically rake through all the past events. And that's legitimate and, for a lot of people. That's yeah. totally legitimate. That and that was me up until, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. And, yeah, be prepared to bottom out harder than you've ever bottomed out. But after that comes some really, really wonderful sunshine. When she was a girl, my friend made a pact with herself, never to say that person's name. And if she ever did say that name, it'd be because she was finally free of everything that happened. But I haven't. Like, it's just been sitting there right in my mouth to say the name. And I still haven't. And I don't think it's because it's unresolved or that I still feel um, I still feel hurt by it, but I feel as though it's some loyalty to my little six-year-old self that to be loyal to her that I have to not keep that secret, but hold her resolve. Thank you so much for listening. If this has brought up anything difficult for you, we're going to put links to places where you can get help on our website. As you know, we're going to be live on air in nights with Brian Crump after this episode goes to air. That's 9.35 on Wednesday, July 11th. So if there's anything from this episode that you have more questions about, or just any questions, email bang at radionz.co.nz and we'll try our best to get through as many as we can. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, and engineered by William Saunders. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. Listener.